Good morning, Fremont Community Church. It is great to be here with you today. Hey, speaking of costumes, I want to make sure we get this out there. Youth and youth leaders, Wednesday night is a costume party at youth group, so come and uh, wear an appropriate costume, and uh, we will have a lot of fun. And it'll be funny to see somebody dressed up like Pee Wee Herman get hit with a dodgeball. Half of them are like, who's Pee Wee Herman? All right. Um, <laughs> hey, I, I want to start this morning by asking a question, and I want interaction. I want your answers out loud. Um, we all have our weaknesses. Um, one of my weaknesses is I have these guilty pleasure snacks that I like. And when I mean guilty pleasure, I don't just mean unhealthy. I mean stuff from my childhood that is objectively gross, but I still crave it every now and then. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody else have these types of guilty pleasures? Things from your childhood, you know, uh, foods that you had that now you've had many opportunities to have a way better version of that, but you still crave the gross version. Anybody with me on this? All right, shout them out. What are they? What are your... Moon pie! Oh my gosh! I could go for a moon pie right now. <laughs> what else? McDonald's cheeseburger. McDonald's cheeseburger. What was that? I heard something back there. Was that just somebody saying yes, they like that? All right, cool. M&M's, right? You could have like Swiss chocolate and we still crave M&M's, right? What else? Kraft macaroni and cheese. Kraft macaroni and cheese, it's powder. What did you say? The Oreo cookies. Oatmeal, oh, the oatmeal pies, the little Debbie. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. Ramen. Oh, hey, I had ramen like four times this week, all right? Uh, <laughs> here's what it is for me. It doesn't matter how many amazing, authentic, quality taco trucks are in Fremont. I still love Taco Bell. <laughs> you know what else I like? You know how cheap it is to make spaghetti at home? It's not expensive. I still crave SpaghettiOs sometimes. That's gross. You can taste the can. It's disgusting. But I love it. Oh my gosh, the other one is, it doesn't matter how good fresh vegetables are, I love canned peas and canned green beans. It's so silly. The fresh thing is the same price and it's not that hard to prepare, but give me the can. I like the fresh. You like the what? The fresh. fresh, you like the fresh. See, you're better taste than me. But this is, there's something about the human condition that it's not just the silly, you know, a guilty pleasure food that we have. We have this tendency as humans uh, to want to go to the familiar, to the safe. Even, even if there's something better out there to be have, we don't want to risk the thing that we have. You know, it's not just guilty pleasure foods. I wonder how many times in my life I passed up on something amazing, a true gift from God that was better than what I was currently experiencing, and I passed it up because I wanted the safety and the familiarity with what I had. And that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 4. He's not talking about SpaghettiOs. He's talking about the, the tendency to want to hold on to the past, to hold on to what we know, even if there's a chance that something better might be out there. You know, Paul is continuing his argument with the Galatian church, and they're facing this pressure. There are many uh, pressuring them, uh, these, these new believers, to become Jewish before they can become Christian, and specifically in outward ways, um, in order that they might participate in the church. When Paul talks about works of the law and being under the law, he's talking about the fact that there are those at work against Paul, trying to make these these. Uh, these enforce these things on the Galatian Christians, things like circumcision and kosher food laws, and, and they're working to exclude anyone from the congregation who doesn't do what they do. 
And so in these verses, Paul continues to make the case that Jesus fulfills the law and that Jesus is better than the law. And Pastor Ty did an awesome job last week demonstrating how in chapter 3 that, that Paul is making this case, that, that the promise came to Abraham, the promise that God was at work making all things that are wrong in this world right. He said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you'll be a blessing to the whole world. That promise came way before the law ever came to Moses. And so, so Pastor Ty did a great job of, of, of going through chapter 3 to, to help us understand that Jesus is the one who fulfills the promise. Jesus came to fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham. And, and temporary law was given like a babysitter for us while we awaited that promise to be fulfilled. In, in chapter 4, pa Paul's taking this argument a step further. And later in the chapter, he talks about Abraham. In verses 1 through 11, he's actually referring to the Exodus. He's using language that is going to remind people of the story of the Exodus. And it's such an important uh, story in, in the history of Israel. It's a part of their identity. Paul is making the case that in Jesus, we have a better Exodus. Now, let me give some background. Let me tell a bit of the story from Abraham to the Exodus so we can see how Paul is weaving this argument together. It starts with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and says, I am going to bless you that you might bless the whole world. Through your offspring, the whole world will be blessed. But what was the problem? Abraham was childless and old, <laughs> right? His prospects for having a family were not looking great. His, his wife was never able to conceive, and she was also old. And so what did Abraham do? He took matters into his own hands. He slept with his wife's slave, Hagar, and they conceived a son, Ishmael. And we'll come back to why this is problematic later, but that was not God's plan. Instead, God rebukes them and, and brings them back. He says, remember the promise I gave you. Through Sarah, you will have offspring, and that offspring will bless the whole world. And so Sarah mirac miraculously conceives and gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob. And through Jacob come the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and one of those sons, Joseph, finds his way to Egypt, finds his way. He gets sold into slavery. That's a really, he gets sold into slavery and finds his way into Egypt, right? But eventually, uh, through God's providence, he ends up in a very uh, influential position in Egypt. And so when, when the people of Israel, when his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, come looking for help because there's a famine, uh, Joseph forgives and welcomes his brothers. And it's there that the people of Israel find themselves in Egypt. And over time, they, they increase in number, and they become a threat to the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians put them into slavery. They make them work. They make them worship their false gods. They're, they're enslaved. They're unable to do what they've been called to do, to worship the one true God. They're unable to be the people that God has called them to be, and they're forced into worshiping these false Egyptian gods. And after generations of, of Abraham's descendants who are born and die in slavery in Egypt— They've got to be wondering, has God forgotten about us? In fact, I think many of them had forgotten about God entirely because of this experience. But God intervenes. In the Exodus, God shows himself to be compassionate, and he shows himself to be powerful. Through Moses, he asks that his people be set free. Through, through signs and wonders, he demonstrates his power to the people of Egypt. And yet Pharaoh hardens his heart over and over, right? You remember this story? But God is patient. 
Even with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians, he is patient and gives them many opportunities to do what's right. But eventually, the firstborn of, of all the Egyptians are, Egyptian males are struck down. The people of Israel are set free. And it's after they are set free, God gives them this law by which they are to live. And, and more importantly, within that law, he sets up a system by which he will be present with his people. If they're faithful to the law, God's people will live in freedom in their own land, and God will be present with them in the temple. Okay, that's a really long recap of some important events in the life of the people of God, the Jewish people, right? So while this recap, well, it's because we can't fully understand Galatians 4 unless we understand Israel's past, what God had done through Abraham all the way through Moses, the Exodus, and the law. So with that, let's finally look at Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul continues his, his argument that the law was at best a babysitter uh, until the f- promise could be fulfilled through Christ. And he starts by saying this. What I am saying is that as long as, there, the, uh, as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to, to guardians and trustees until time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the, time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I may have wasted my efforts on you. Man, Paul is, he's feeling it. He's trying to, to correct them. He's trying to correct them, but he's also, this is personal to him. Did I waste my efforts on you? More about that in a bit, but, but look at the language that we've just read in this passage. It's Exodus language. What happened in the Exodus? God's people were redeemed. That word comes up over and over again in the Exodus language. And then God's presence came to be with his people. Paul is saying in this new Exodus, God has set us free from a bigger form of slavery than even what you experienced in Egypt. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we are offered freedom from our slavery to sin and the death that comes from sin. We are redeemed, not just from a temporary captor, but from our greatest enemies, sin and death. It's not just that we're rescued from this, it's also we're rescued into something. And what is that we're rescued into? We go from being slaves to sin to children of God, heirs of the promise. This is beautiful. The exodus was good. Jesus' exodus for us is even better. God sent his son. Look at those language in there. God sent his son to be present with us, to take on our sin and suffering. He became human. And then God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. For Paul, what we have in Christ, this new exodus, is better because in the original, God rescued people from a circumstance and made a way through the law for his presence to be with people in the temple. But in this new exodus, God 
has set us free from our eternal enemies, sin and death, not just circumstances. And it says he now dwells in our hearts, not just a temple that we can trek to, but in us. And he's here with us now, not because we're in this building, because his presence is always with those who have faith. He has filled us with his Holy Spirit. In Galatians 4, Paul is using Jewish history and Jewish theology in order to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish history and Jewish theology. He's saying the exodus was good and the law was good, but Jesus is better. Jesus is perfect. The best the law could do was restrain evil, hold back evil. That's the best it could do. And it could also point people for their need for God, but guess what? Jesus came to fulfill our need for God. He came to bridge the gap. He came to heal what was broken. And then he gives us the spirit of Christ. It says God gave us the spirit of Christ. Why? Not just to restrain evil, but but to transform us, to make us new, to make us whole. You see what he's getting at here. The exodus was good, but it was temporary. This new exodus through Jesus is permanent. It's permanent, and it doesn't just make a difference in our present circumstances. It certainly does. But it takes care of our biggest problems, sin and death. I love this next section we're going to get into, because with what's going on in Galatia, Paul is trying really hard. I mean, he's not using you know, passive language. He is on, he's in attack mode. And it seems a little off-putting, but you'll see why in a minute. Let's look at it in Galatians 4, 17 through 20. He says, those people, talking about the people who are trying to convert them to Judaism before they can become Christian, he says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for, for whom I have I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish to be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed with you. Paul's saying, what is the point of all this? What's the point? It's good to have zeal if it's for the right things. Paul switches from theology mode into pastor mode, and he's trying to help these people see you're being dragged back into slavery in a spiritual sense. Paul acknowledges that these false prophets are are zealous, but for what good? He says, I'm also zealous for you. And in the verses that I skipped, verses 12 through 16, Paul mentions that he was in bad shape when he got there. When he first visited the Galatians, he was only supposed to stay for a short time and then move on. But he was in bad health. He talks about an illness that he has, and it's not clear what that illness was. Some scholars believe it's actually a physical ailment that came from the persecution that he was receiving because of his preaching of the gospel. And we don't know that 100% sure, but we do know this. By the time Paul reaches Galatia, he'd been arrested many times. He had been beaten many times. His life had been threatened many times. Later in the book of Galatians, it says he bears the mark of persecution. His body demonstrates how zealous he is. Up to this point in his ministry, he has taken a beating for the gospel, and now he's going, did I waste my time on you guys? I risked everything 
I was in bad shape when I came to you because I risked everything and I continue to risk everything by preaching to you the gospel. Remember my scars. Remember what I was willing to go through so that you could have freedom in Christ. He's also saying this, what good is zeal? What good is passion if it's not based on the truth? And Paul is saying, hey, these other people have zeal, but so do I. And I will continue to risk everything for you because I'm convinced that I've got the truth. I'm convinced that Jesus has shown himself to me, to the apostles, to the church. What good is zeal if it's not based in the truth? And so this brings up a really important point of context that I think helps unlock what's going on in the Galatian church. And if you Bible nerds, your theology nerds are out there, this is a fun one, so buckle up. Uh, for the Roman and Greek world, uh, worshiping uh, many of gods uh, was, was a part of the empire. It was a part of being a citizen um, or under the rule of Roman reign. You had to worship the gods of Rome. And when Rome conquered a new place, they would often include the gods of the place that they conquered. Why? Because it was, a, it was kind of like a political thing. Hey, if, if, if we at least include their gods, there'll be less re revolts, there'll be less rebellions, and everybody will be happy because they still get to worship their gods. They just need to worship ours too. It was a part of the way of life. We've got a whole bunch of gods. What's a few more, right? That was their mentality. But the problem arose when they conquered the people of Israel. Hey, we conquered these people, and they got these ten rules. They call them ten commandments, right? And the first two are all about how we can't worship any other god but this one. And so what do we do with that? And that led to all sorts of unrest because the Jews were saying, no, 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 no. We don't compromise on this. We worship one God. We refuse to worship yours. And, and the Romans, they thought this was crazy. The, the, to believe in one God is insane, they thought. And so in fact, they actually called Jews and early Christians atheists because of their position on worshiping just one God. For the Jewish people, this is not up for compromise. And so th there was all sorts of tension, persecution, and, and many revolutions were breaking out because of the tension that existed here. So, so the Romans made what they called the Jewish exception. Jews and Jews alone were allowed to abstain from worshiping the false Greek and Roman gods. It wasn't worth the fight for the Roman Empire, so they said, let's just make this exception. It's just not worth the trouble. What does this have to do with the book of Galatians? Well, many of these newly converted Christians... Um, they knew that becoming a Christian, these were Gentiles, these were non-Jews who were becoming Christians. They knew they put a target on their backs because these Christians also believed there was one God and that it was not acceptable to worship these false gods. And so by becoming a Christian, they were literally putting the, the, the target of persecution on their back. And so this is a tool that these Judaizers use to convince them Hey, just get circumcised. Hey, let's live kosher. Just become Jewish. Then you get the exemption. And then you get to have Jesus, but you get to live under the law, and you get, you get to keep the persecution of the government off your back. And you could see why this message was so appealing, why it was taking root in the Galatian church. Paul is saying it doesn't work like that. The Christian faith is about Jesus and Jesus alone. The law was not perfect. Jesus is perfect. The law could not save us from our sins. Jesus saves us from our sins. Paul is saying that to accept the true gospel is to accept that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And to proclaim, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord in this way was to put them out of step with the world. 
What Paul is saying as he bears the scars of persecution, don't go backwards so that you can avoid scars like mine. It's not worth it. He's got the credibility because he's gone through it. He's risked everything for the gospel, and he's saying, don't. Don't go backwards. Don't change the gospel so that you can avoid my scars. And this makes a ton of sense, not just for for theological reasons, but also makes sense for, for practical reasons. Think about it. At best, by converting to Judaism, you avoided some persecution. But even with this Jewish exemption, they were a conquered people, and many were enslaved exactly like they were in Egypt. Even with this exemption, there wasn't a whole lot of freedom from their temporary circumstances. And as Paul has already said, under the law, there is no freedom from our greatest enemies, sin and death. Only Jesus can do that. Paul is saying God has done something new in Jesus and you can't grab a hold of it while you're holding on to the old. This is important for us because I, I'm not regularly tempted to become Jewish in order to, become, in order to please God. But there are always temptations to return to our old ways before we've encountered Jesus. Sometimes we return to our guilty pleasures, far worse than SpaghettiOs, our old sinful habits, right? The ways that are familiar and comfortable, it's really easy to revert to those things, to try to have those things and have Jesus. Other times we're faced with similar temptations to the Galatian churches. We want to add or subtract from the gospel because it makes it either more comfortable or palatable for us, Or it makes us being out of step with the world not feel so uncomfortable. Al Tizan is a a, a theologian and a pastor, and he wrote a book called Whole and Reconciled. And it's an amazing book, um, and it's it's shaped my thought a lot on how the church does mission in this world. How How do we carry on the mandate that God gave to Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world? And he says there there are a number of half gospels and false gospels that, that often take root in our cultures. And I want to just list off a few of them just because you, you see these things all the time. He talks about the false gospel of hate. It's a gospel. It's no gospel at all. It's that God is angry at the wicked sinners. Thank goodness I'm not one of them. But I can't wait until he judges those wicked sinners. And throughout history, this gospel of hate has always led to violence in the name of Jesus. And it's no gospel at all. And then there's the prosperity gospel, and it goes like this. God wants you to prosper, and if you have true faith, you will prosper. And if you're not prospering, your faith isn't good enough. How, how does that jibe with a Savior that went to the cross? The cross is not prosperity. It's sacrifice, right? The truth is God does want us to prosper, but it doesn't look like the world thinks it does. The gospel of comfort is a a variation of that that prosperity gospel. This is the one that I think is most tempting for us on a daily basis, the gospel of comfort. God desires for human flourishing. So we seek comfort in our lives and we say, well, this is good. It clearly is from God. And while that's true, we can do so while ignoring all of those who live in discomfort, who live in poverty, who live in sickness, who live under persecution of some sort, right? Right? It's a nice gospel to believe in. It feels comfortable, but it's not the one of Jesus Christ. Gospel of empire. The empire strikes back. No, not Star Wars. The gospel of empire. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. I talked about Christian nationalism and what happens when people seek to gain power through government to enforce a Christian worldview. 
often what we end up left with is a lot of nationalism and very little Jesus. Um, and and, and it, it doesn't look like a Jesus-shaped gospel um, that we see in the pages of Scripture. So these are some false gospels that are, we see all around us all the time, if we're honest. There's also these two half gospels that I want to share with you. The gospel of personal salvation. It, 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 it reduces the gospel to only this. God saves individual souls. It hinges on this, this very true statement that God loves each and every one of us. That is so true. I'm not here to, to say that's not true at all. But, what it, but what it, where it goes wrong, where it errs, is, is on the focus of the soul at the expense of the rest of us. Right? God loves our whole self, not just our souls. And it turns Christianity into something that's just between me and God. It doesn't take into account the community that God calls us to, all the familial language in the Bible. It's just about heaven and hell. It doesn't matter what happens here and now. And it's also, ultimately, it's like, who cares about the world? God's going to rescue my soul. I get to escape this place. Then there's the flip side of that, which is the gospel of social liberation. Sorry, this feels very academic. I think it's really important for us to see these things because it's so, uh, it's so everywhere in our culture. And this gospel of social liberation, it focuses on the social aspects of the gospel at the expense of everything else. So it's all about how God wants systems of justice and mercy, which is true, he does, but it doesn't pay any attention to individuals in our, in our state with God. Tizan goes on to, to define the true gospel as it's both. God does care about individual souls, and he does care about justice and mercy here on earth. He says, he, he, I'm paraphrasing Tizan's word because it's a chapter long, but he says, Jesus is king. Through the life, death, and resurrection and rule of King Jesus, all that is lost will be found. All that is wrong will be, right, be made right. Through Jesus, God is at work reconciling all things to himself, and that includes me and you and all of creation. Tizan calls it the gospel of shalom, which is this beautiful Hebrew word of total peace, of total wholeness. Shalom means all things are as they are supposed to be, and Jesus came to bring us that peace, that wholeness, that shalom. One day, all things will be as they should be. That is the gospel. Paul is saying there is no law, there is no religious ceremony, there is nothing that can accomplish or even add anything of value to what Jesus has done. For these Gentiles who are coming to know the Lord, he's saying it's Jesus, it's only Jesus, he's the only true freedom that we can find in this life. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. And he's telling us that same thing today. Do not get distracted by the false gospels. Do not get distracted by half-truths. Do not get distracted by your old ways. Sometimes following Jesus feels a lot like this, this video here. Oh, I'm that sheep. Jesus has rescued me, and it's so natural to... Oh, there's the slow-mo. I forgot about that. It's so natural to just jump back into our old ways of believing and behaving, isn't it? But in order to grab a hold of him, we've got to be able to let go of the other stuff. It cannot save us. It can't somehow make Jesus better. We've got to leave it behind and run after Jesus, and we don't turn 
There's one last verse in, in Galatians chapter four that I wanna share with you, and I'm gonna summarize it really quickly. Um, let me just say, there's so much in Galatians. I wanted this to be a half hour sermon. There's just too much here, I'm sorry. Um, but in my long-winded recap of, of Abraham to Exodus, I mentioned Sarah and their son Isaac, and I mentioned Hagar, uh, Hagar Sarah's slave, and her son Ishmael. And in these, this last section of, of uh, Galatians 4, Paul uses Sarah and, and, and Hagar as, as a word picture. He's not making any judgment of value. He's not saying that Sarah's better because she's a free woman and, and Hagar's uh, worse because she's a slave. He's not making any value judgment. He's using them as a word picture. He's saying Hagar represents Abraham's attempt at taking matters into his own hands. Right? He, Abraham's thinking through, he's like, God's called me and my family to bless the whole world, and he's promised son, a son to me, he's promised offspring to me, but my wife is old, she's never been able to conceive, and, and they, they seem to lose faith that God can do the impossible. So they try to take matters into their own hands, and Sarah gives Hagar for Abraham to sleep with so she could bear him a son. Ishmael's born, there's nothing wrong with Ishmael, but he's not the promised child, and so God rebukes Abraham and Sarah, and he says, put your trust in me. And by living, by faith in the promise, Abraham and Sarah conceived this son Isaac, something that was only possible, possible through the miraculous intervention of God. Sarah in Galatians represents faith, faith that God and God alone can do the impossible. Hagar represents trying to do it our own way. Paul is saying, stop trying to do it your own way. Stop trying to earn God's love. Stop, stop trying to, to add to the gospel. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. When we have faith that God's promises are true, when we truly believe that the life, death, resurrection, and rule of Jesus Christ is the gospel, we have true freedom. Like Paul said earlier in this chapter, not just freedom from the consequences of sin and death, but freedom to become God's children. Verse 428, or chapter 4, verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. We are heirs to the promise and we are heirs to the mission. We've been blessed by no work of our own through Jesus Christ. And now we see our blessing and we go and become a blessing to others. We carry on the mission that God gave Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. We invite others, not to the old ways, not with strings attached, not with a message of clean up your behavior and God will love you. No, the old barriers that we put between us and others, the old barriers that we put between others and God, they're done away with. The promise of God is being fulfilled in Christ. He alone sets us free from sin and death. He alone is at worth reconciling all things to himself. He's working to bring shalom to all who will put their faith in him, and he's working to bring shalom to all of creation. I'm going to invite the band to come back up as I close, but I want to, I want to close with these words and then pray. Paul is saying to us today, live now in that freedom and that shalom. You can have the old ways. You can try to earn God's love through religious rites or false or half gospels, or you can have Jesus. Jesus, the true familiar, fulfillment of the promise, but you can't have both. Run to Jesus and don't look back.
Let's pray. God, I thank you for these words. I thank you for these words because they truly set me free. There, I know there's not a thing I could do. I know that if I, if, if I stood before you right now and you asked me, hey, what have you done to earn my love? I would have no answer that was sufficient. I'm also grateful, grateful that that's not the question that you ask. I'm also grateful that it's not your posture toward us, but instead your posture toward us is, will you believe? Will you have faith? You believe that I love you so much that I sent my one and only son for you. Thank you that your posture towards me is that you don't have to earn it. You couldn't if you tried. Jesus has done it. But thank you that every day you are fulfilling the promise you made to Abraham thousands of years ago. You are blessing the world through your presence, through Jesus Christ, the ultimate heir, the ultimate child of Abraham. And so God, as we, we leave from this place later today, we go out in a world that, that needs you, and we go out in a world that, that, that also at times pulls us away from you. God, I pray that we would leave behind all the things that distract us, the sinful patterns that keep trying to drag us back to, to our old ways, the things that we're prone to believe that distract us from the true gospel, from the true Jesus. God, protect us from these things. Help us. Help us to see Jesus clearly, the author and pioneer of our faith, and help us to run to him and not look back. Thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled and you are fulfilling your promises to us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we give you all the praise and honor and glory. Amen.